Well, please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 4 of Mark's Gospel is where we are going to be focusing our attention in God's Word today. As we've covered the first three chapters of Mark's Gospel, we've seen that this is a Gospel of action. Jesus Christ is moving quickly from place to place. Everything is happening immediately, as that has become the favorite word that Mark uses throughout his gospel. And that this account that Mark has written down for us, we are reminded, come from the memoirs of the apostle Peter. Peter and Mark were both in Rome, ministering to the Christians there, and that Mark was led by the Spirit of God to write down the things that Peter had been teaching about his time with Jesus Christ when he was on the earth in his ministry, particularly his Galilean ministry here in the first half of Mark's gospel. And in Mark chapter 4, we have the first break in the action. We've been moving at a breakneck speed throughout the opening year of Jesus' ministry, going from place to place, village to village, miracle after miracle, casting out demons. And all of this is coming to a head where there is a confrontation between the authority that Jesus Christ has as the word of God in the flesh and the religious authorities of the Jewish people who were known as the scribes or the Pharisees who held great respect in the eyes of the people and who were viewed as the authority on how to interpret and understand God's word. Jesus Christ came in and he spoke things that were very different, very contrary to what many of the things that the religious authorities had been saying. And so they were threatened by his authority And we're coming to the point where they needed a plan to put an end to this upstart. But the crowds, the crowds are still very interested in Jesus. And we see in chapter 4 a change in Jesus' teaching ministry. As we have learned from our opening chapters in Mark's gospel, Jesus Christ came to teach. As a reference there in the gospel of Luke chapter 4, we are reminded that just as Jesus said in the gospel of Mark, Luke records... I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. So Christ has come and he's preached throughout the towns, the large towns of this region in Galilee. And the crowds, while having great interest in Jesus, have not heeded the message of Jesus. And so here in Mark chapter 4, we have a change, a different approach now that Jesus takes to public ministry in light of the settled opposition of the religious authorities and the hard-heartedness of the people when they should have recognized who he was, they should have obeyed his teaching as authoritative from God, and yet they are failing to repent and believe the good news of the kingdom of God. So let's go ahead and read the first eight verses here in chapter 4. With that review and introduction in mind, what is this break in the action? What does Mark want us to know about the change in Jesus' teaching ministry at this point? Notice what it says. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land, and he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, 
And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus is beside the sea, and a large crowd has gathered around him. So much so that he does get into a boat that is out on the water and is teaching the crowd from the boat as we see there in the opening verses. And as he's teaching the crowd, he's going to teach them in parables. And here in Matthew 13:52, Matthew 13 is the chapter that corresponds to Mark chapter 4. To get to this point in Matthew's gospel, we've got 12 chapters, but Mark, moving so fast, like we said, gets to the kingdom parables after only three chapters. And there, as Jesus describes his teaching of the crowds in parables, he says, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And so here you get a a great insight into the teaching of Jesus Christ, that he's not denying what is old. There are treasures in the word of God that Jesus Christ is bringing out and showing to the people. In fact, the prophecies that are in the book of Isaiah were some of these key treasures that he would bring out and preach in the synagogues to let them know that the time was near and that the kingdom of God was at hand and that the healing ministry that Jesus Christ was doing was portending the coming of God's kingdom. And these things were known to the people of Israel. They were what is old. But Jesus Christ, as he preached the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, he came also teaching what is new. And some of these new things that Jesus Christ was teaching, he was teaching in parables. And the parables, as we will see as we go throughout the chapter, were designed so that those who were interested in truly following Jesus Christ who had obeyed the teaching he had already been proclaiming through these past months in the region of Galilee, in their villages and in their synagogue, would be able to understand these new things and be able to to share that with others who were genuine followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet for the crowd at large, these things were taught in parables without the explanation. Now, it says there that Jesus was teaching them many things in parables. Now, in this chapter, Mark is going to record for us just a small handful of those parables. And you can go to Matthew chapter 13 and get some insight into what some of the other parables are, as well as looking into Luke chapter 8 and other places where Jesus teaches kingdom parables, where he's teaching these new things, but in a way that is hidden for those who are on the outside. So here, you see that Jesus Christ has those who are the insiders who understand the parable and those who are the outsiders who do not get the explanation for the parable. Now, if you were there along the seashore and and you just heard verses 3 through 8 as they were coming from Jesus' lips, you wouldn't have any idea what the application was. A parable without its comparison is like a riddle. You'd be kind of left to wonder, well, what did he mean by that? And it wasn't until later that he explained the parables to his disciples. This is different. This is new. This is not what he was doing before. Before, he was speaking openly, speaking publicly. He was speaking about the things of the kingdom of God. But now as he's introducing new truth about the kingdom of God, he's doing it in a way that is hidden from those who are on the outside. And they're only on the outside because they choose to be on the outside. 
the call of Jesus to be on the inside has gone out to everyone. And those who have heard have not responded. And that's where we are in this story. Now, as Jesus taught in parables, you might ask, well, what is a parable? And we'll see that there are several examples here. But a parable is just a figure of speech. It's a simile or an analogy, a comparison of one thing with another thing. And when it comes to the parables of Jesus, what is being compared is the kingdom of God to something in our everyday human experience or something in nature. So a parable takes this form. This is like that, with this being the kingdom of God and that being something that is from nature or from human life in their time and place. That's a parable. Now, to interpret the parables, we need to have insight from Jesus Christ, insight from the Holy Spirit, and we always want to interpret the parables in light of the central thrust of the parable. Once you understand what the main idea of the parable is, then you can understand the details according to that main idea. So let's take a look then at this first parable in verses 1 through 8. We read it just a moment ago. It is called the parable of the soils. Now, you may have heard this parable referred to as the parable of the sower because it starts off with the sower going out to sow. And so it might seem natural to call it the parable of the sower. But that would be a misnomer because the sower is actually not very important at all in this parable. But what the parable is really about is about the four different kinds of soil. That's why we call it the parable of the soils. And that's where the explanation of the parable that comes later is focused on the four soils. And Jesus gives us the parable of the sower in Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, in order to explain the current situation. That as Jesus Christ came on the heels of John the Baptist... As John the Baptist pointed to Jesus as being the one who was greater than him, who was going to baptize with the Holy Spirit, John the Baptist was expecting that the kingdom of God was going to be set up immediately. And the disciples of Jesus, when they discovered that we have found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, they were expecting that all the people of Israel were going to become followers of Jesus, they would trust in him as the Savior, and that the kingdom of God would be established right away. Because that was the impression the word of God had left on them according to their understanding of it, according to the Old Testament prophets. But now we see that as Jesus is preaching, the, the religious leaders want to kill him. And most of the crowds are not obeying his teaching, even though they're very interested in him. They're not following and doing what he says. And, and so John the Baptist and the disciples of Jesus, they're wondering, what's going on? This isn't what we expected. This isn't how we thought things were going to go. And so this is why we have a break in the action here for Jesus to be able to explain why things are the way they are and what God's plan is from here. So, boom, God has fulfilled the promises. He sent John the Baptist, he sent Jesus, and yet, wah, 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 things have kind of fallen apart. And so Jesus is now going to say, well, this was all part of the plan. It wasn't revealed very clearly in the Old Testament, but now I'm going to reveal to you through these parables what is happening and what's going to happen next. So this is new truth that Jesus Christ is bringing for those who are disciples and believers, to be able to understand the present situation as it relates to the coming of God's kingdom. All right, That's the big idea in these parables. 
Now, before we actually explain the interpretation of the parable of the soils, not the parable of the sower. If you're looking at the ESV, it's wrong. Uh, You could cross out sower and put soils. This is about the soils. It's not about the sower. And as we look into it, before we look at the details, let's look at what Jesus says in chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, and also verses 33 and 34 about the purpose of speaking in parables. All right, so Jesus' own words about why he's teaching in parables. And, and there in verse 9, Jesus ended that first parable with a call to hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So by implication, Jesus is letting the crowd know that some people have ears to hear and some people don't have ears to hear. And now that's going to become a big idea as Jesus explains the purpose of the parables in verses 10 through 12. So, verse 10. Look in your Bible as I read it out loud for us. When he was alone, so we're going away from the seaside now. He's out of the boat. Later on, he's with his disciples, just those around him, the twelve and others. And his disciples, together with the twelve, are asking him about the parables, as it says in verse 10. Now, when it says they asked him about the parables, we learn from Matthew's gospel and from Luke's gospel that they really had two questions here. One was, why are you teaching them in parables? And the second one was, what does the parable of the sower mean? And we see that was their question because of the way Jesus answers their question by first explaining why he teaches in parables and then what the parable of the soils actually means. And so, he said to them in verse 11, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside... Everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? We'll stop there for now. So in verses 9 through 12, Jesus explains to us why he has made this change in his public teaching from teaching plainly and clearly what the Old Testament prophets had predicted about the coming of the kingdom, and now he's teaching in parables these new truths about the kingdom of God. And he says, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. Here's some secrets, some mysteries, things that wouldn't be known unless God revealed them to us. And Jesus Christ here is revealing some secret things about the kingdom of God. But these things are not being given to those who are on the outside. Now, once again, don't feel like this is unfair, that there's insiders and outsiders, and this is preferential treatment that Jesus is giving. Jesus has given everyone the chance to be an insider. He's gone to every village. He's gone to every town. He said, I'm here, I'm preaching the truth, come follow me. And if you wanted to, you could be a disciple of Jesus. This is not an exclusive group. This is a general call that has gone out. But those who have responded, we find out that this is because of the work of God in their life. This is something that has been given to them. We find this very clearly in the parallel account in Matthew 13. Remember, Matthew 13 is the kingdom parable chapter in Matthew's gospel. And Jesus answered this question, and the answer is recorded in a little bit fuller detail, where it has the contrast. To you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, it has not been given. So, has been given. Who's the one that has given this? God. 
God is the divine passive so often in Scripture, that God has given some the privilege of knowing the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to others, God has not given this. Now, this idea that God reveals things to those whom he wants to reveal them and hides them from those whom he wants to hide them is not a new idea. It's not that Jesus came up with this. This is something that goes back to the Old Testament prophets, and that's why in verse 12 in your text, Jesus is quoting from Isaiah. When it says, They may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. This is an important passage in the book of Isaiah, Jesus here is quoting from a, a foundational, important text in the Old Testament prophets. Isaiah is the chief among the prophets, the first book there. Isaiah chapter 6 records the call of Isaiah. And there, Isaiah is told what to expect from his public ministry. As he goes and reveals new things to the people of Israel, things that they had not heard before, prophecies that were not in Moses, prophecies that had not been made by Elijah, but Isaiah is revealing new things of what is yet to come, and Isaiah is told that he is going to go up against a hard-hearted people who are not going to listen, who are not going to hear. And so as we come to the time of Jesus, and there's a new age, and new things are being revealed, we find that Jesus is getting the same response from the people of Israel that Isaiah was told to expect from the people of Israel. This is a, a repetition. And so often when prophecy is being fulfilled, it's because God is repeating in history what has happened before. Now, not only do we have Matthew chapter 13, verse 11, talking about God giving this knowledge to some and not to others, this is also emphasized later in Matthew's gospel when Jesus confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the chosen one of God, Jesus answered him and said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So the Father in heaven reveals the truth about the kingdom of heaven and about Jesus Christ, the coming king, to those whom he chooses to reveal it to. This is an important teaching from the Old Testament, from the New Testament. It's controversial because a lot of people don't think this sounds fair, that God would reveal it to some and not reveal it to others. But as I've pointed out, it is fair because God does do the general call and makes it available to whosoever will. It's not that there's people out there who want to have this revelation and God is withholding it from them. No, it's that those who want it have it. And they want it and have it because God has been gracious to them and has given them a tremendous spiritual blessing. All right, another passage that I think is really helpful here as we think through why is it that some people know and respond to the word of God and, and have spiritual insight and other people do not? Well, Paul is a great example. Saul of Tarsus was one of these scribes, one of these Pharisees who hated Jesus and the way of Jesus and who persecuted it and wanted to put Christians in prison and put Christians to death. But notice what Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. When he who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me. And where it says to me there in the ESV, I put in parentheses up there in brackets, a more literal translation, God was pleased to reveal his son in me. That's what the, the Greek actually says there. And I, I prefer to keep the literal translation there rather than what the ESV did because it shows you that God is at work within hearts. 
and that God revealed Jesus Christ in the heart and mind of Saul of Tarsus. And as soon as he recognized who Jesus Christ was, as soon as it was revealed to him that he is the Christ, he is the Messiah, well, then he repented of all of his persecution of the Christians and became the most ardent proponent of Christianity that the world has probably ever seen. And this is all because God did it. It wasn't that Saul was like, well, I wonder, you know, is Jesus of Nazareth really the Messiah? And then he went and did interviews and, and researched it and, and found out the truth. And he's like, I've been wrong this whole time. No, that's not how it happened. God struck him with light on the road and knocked him off his horse and turned him around. And this was God being pleased to reveal the Son in the heart of the Apostle Paul. So what I'm preaching here is known as the doctrines of grace. Some people call it Calvinism, but I'd prefer to call it biblical theology. This is what Jesus taught. This is what the apostles taught. This is what the Old Testament prophets taught, like Isaiah. And we see it all throughout Scripture, even going back to Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 4. To this day, Moses opined about the people of Israel, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or what? Ears to hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. How does someone get ears to hear? The Lord gives it. If you've got ears to hear, why do you have it? It's because the Lord gave you ears to hear. Are you better? Are you smarter? Are you wiser than other people who don't have ears to hear? No, you are not. You are graced. You are blessed because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you any more than it revealed it to Peter, any more than it revealed it to Paul. My Father in heaven has revealed it to you is the word of Jesus and Moses and all the prophets. Now, Deuteronomy 29.4 is a key text in Paul's chapters on Israel's unbelief in Romans. Now, Isaiah 6, which was what Jesus quoted there, in verse 12 of Mark chapter 4 is a key verse that's used over and over again in the New Testament about the unbelief of Israel. But Deuteronomy 29.4 is also a key verse on the unbelief of Israel as, as Paul brings it in here in Romans chapter 11 saying, As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. Why are there so few who are believing? The disciples wondering and looking at Jesus saying, look at the miracles you're doing. Look at the authority over demons that you have. Look at the power of your teaching that no one has ever spoke like you speak. Why isn't everyone a Christian? Why isn't everyone a disciple? Why are so many of the Jews hardening their hearts and, and the leaders seeking to put you to death? Because God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. Now, you look back in Mark chapter 4, and you come to a little bit later in the chapter where he's wrapping up his teaching in parables, and this has much the same tenor, much the same explanatory power here in Mark chapter 4, verses 33 and 34, about Jesus' teaching in parables. So that's why we're taking it out of order and putting it with verses 11 and 12 there. Notice what Mark says. He emphasizes again at the end, just as he had there at the beginning. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them, as they were able to hear it. There's a key phrase right there. As they were able to hear it. He who has an ear, let him hear. As they were able, that's how he spoke to them. And notice verse 34. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. He's hiding the truth from the masses who have not believed, who have not obeyed, who do not have ears to hear. And some teachers have rightly pointed out that this is an act of grace. 
that if people have not responded to the truth that God has presented, you don't load them up with more truth that they're not going to respond to and that they're going to be more accountable to God for, for having not obeyed and believed. But it's actually an act of grace to hide the truth from these who have not received the truth that they have been given so that they don't have a greater judgment for having denied and disobeyed even more truth. So he spoke to them as they were able to hear it. I like that phrase, and I I did some study in Scripture as to what it means to be able to hear God's Word. And here's some key verses I think would be helpful for us. John chapter 16, verse 12, where Jesus spoke to his disciples. Not the crowds, but here he's speaking to the disciples, who also were only able to hear so much. He said, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Even at the end of Jesus' ministry, as he's in his upper room discourse in John chapter 16, the disciples are still not able to hear a lot of the things that Jesus wants to teach them. They're not ready. They're not capable. And this is still true for people today. There's certain truths that we are able and capable of hearing, and there's certain truths that we are not able and capable of hearing. And when we're not able and capable of hearing it, we are to be blamed for that. We should be able to hear And it's only our sin, it's only our unbelief, it's only our immaturity and foolishness that keeps us from learning the things that we should be learning. You know, those of you that are teachers, you know that there's certain things that you expect your students to know. But you should know this by now. Now I've got to go back and teach you this again because you've forgotten what you should have remembered. And that's the way it is spiritually. Jesus is a teacher and he comes into the world and he's like, you guys should know this. You should be ready for this. You've got the whole Old Testament. You've got Moses and the prophets. I've given you hundreds of years. You should know this. And he was astounded and amazed at how little people understood and knew. And we were to be blamed for that. And how about us? Here, 2,000 years of church history. 2,000 years to be able to study the New Testament and pass it on. And how the church has failed over and over again, forgetting what we shouldn't forget, getting off track, becoming worldly in our thinking, having our hearts divided against God and against Christ and and loving the things of this world so that we're not able to hear the things that God wants us to learn. And we have to go back to the spiritual ABCs and get our basic lesson over again when we should be teachers by now, as Paul wrote to the Hebrews. Well, whoever wrote to the Hebrews. Here, as Paul writes to the Corinthians... He blamed them for their slowness of faith, for their immaturity. And Paul says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now, you are not ready. And that's a mild rebuke. He's saying, you should be ready, but you're not. And that's because of your own foolishness. And then, as I said, the writer to the Hebrews wrote and said, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk not solid food. Now, Jesus Christ is amazingly patient. He teaches as they were able to hear it. But he wishes that they were more able to hear than they were, and he wishes that he could teach his disciples many things that they were not able to bear even at the last hour of his time with them before his crucifixion. He who has ears to hear becomes a common refrain in the teaching of Jesus Christ. It's found throughout the Gospels and then particularly notable in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 as John writes down the dictation of the exalted Jesus Christ in his words to the seven churches. The last verse I'd like you to consider on this subject of being able to hear God's word is there in Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. Jesus declared, 
I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Those who had been to school to study and teach the Bible, the scribes, the Pharisees, the truth was hidden from them. Who hid it from them? God hid it from them. Jesus is thanking God for hiding it from them and for revealing it to little children. The Father reveals truth. He does it by the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ. We give him thanks for whatever truth we understand. And for the lack of understanding, we take the blame for our foolishness. All right, well, let's go on and look at the explanation for the parable there in Mark chapter 14, verses 13 through 20. So go back to verse 13, and now we will see Jesus' explanation of the parable of the soils. All right, so he says, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. The parable of the soil is explained. It starts off by, in verse 13, alerting us to Jesus' surprise that the disciples did not understand the parable. Jesus expected his disciples to know what he was talking about before he explained it to them. He thought, oh, okay, I'm teaching the crowds. I don't think the crowds are going to get this. I'm going to hide the truth from them. But the disciples, they'll understand what I'm talking about here when I talk about the soils. And then the disciples come to him afterward, and they're like, what did you mean by that parable with the soils? And, and Jesus is like, you guys don't get this? I thought you would get this. You should know what I'm talking about. So once again, Jesus is often surprised by the unbelief, the hardness of heart, the slowness of faith of people because he has not had that experience. Jesus was never slow of faith. He was never hard of heart. And so it was hard for him to understand that. It didn't make any sense. From his experience, you hear the word of God, you believe it, and you grow in your understanding. So then the next thing you hear, you understand that and believe it, and you grew. And, and throughout his whole life, he had always responded correctly to God's word and had grown in his understanding so that he was spiritually astute. He was mature and wise. And, and he looked around at other people and he's like, why don't you get this? It's so easy. This is what it is. And so he has to explain it to, to these children in their thinking. How well are you going to understand all the other parables if you don't understand this one? Now, that either means that this parable is a foundational parable that helps to explain the others, or it means that this is one of the easiest parables, and if they can't understand this one, then there's no way they're going to be able to understand the others. We don't know exactly why he says, how then will you understand all the other parables if you don't understand this one? But let's go ahead and look at his explanation of what these four soils mean. And he says, the sower sows the word. Jesus Christ came to preach. What did he come to preach? The word. What's the word? It's the word of God. 
It's the gospel of the kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's the word that the sower is sowing. Jesus is sowing it. He's going to send out the twelve to sow it, and he sends out us as his disciples to sow that word as well. Now, the sower doesn't figure into the rest of the parable at all. It doesn't say that the sower has to be a very skillful sower. The sower has to be a very relevant sower who understands the culture and who has built up good friendships with the soils. Otherwise, the soils aren't going to receive the word. Now, Jesus says nothing about the sower. It's all about the soils and the seed. Listen, it's all about the soils and the seed. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about the soils and the seed. That's what Jesus' point is throughout this whole chapter. You can dress the sower up and it doesn't make any difference. You can give the sower new clothes or old clothes. It makes no difference. The power is not in the sower. The power is in the seed. We'll get to that. I'm preaching that a little bit early here, but let's, uh, let's focus on the soils to start with. Number one, Jesus focuses on that falls along the roadside. There in verse 15. The ones along the path where people have made the ground hard by walking on it over and over again. You know, they didn't have concrete back then. They just had dirt. And you'd walk on the dirt until it was a hard path. It's like if you're going out to Wilderness Park. And the seed that falls on the hard path cannot get into the ground. It just sits on top of the ground because it is about as hard as concrete. And as the sower's out there sowing... The seed that falls on the hard ground, it never gets into the soil. But instead, what happens, Jesus says, is that the birds of the air come and take away the seed. And here he identifies Satan as the one who is immediately coming and taking away the word that is sown. So those that are hard in their heart, who have rejected God, the knowledge of God, when they hear the gospel of God, they have no interest at all. They're not giving it a fair hearing. They're not looking for, well, maybe that's a good point. Maybe I should consider this. They're closed-minded. And all they're ready to do is reject it and to find fault with it. And when the hard-hearted person hears the word of God, well, Satan, he comes along and takes it away. That's interesting, isn't it? That not only are they hard-hearted and rejecting the word, but then Satan wants to make sure that there's no chance that that seed is ever going to take root, and so he comes and takes it away. So the hardness of the ground and the coming of the bird both make it so that it's impossible that this seed would ever grow. The second, the rocky ground in verse 16. The rocky ground is a thin layer of soil over a base of limestone. There's a lot of limestone in Israel. And if you've got a thin layer of soil over a bedrock of limestone, what that produces is a hotbed condition. You guys know what a hotbed is? A hotbed is something that people use in order to raise seedlings. A hotbed is a bed of soil enclosed and heated by uh, fermenting manure. And then that causes the seedling to, to grow up and sprout up very quickly. And then you take the seed out of the hotbed and plant it. But here... The seed that is growing in this hotbed-like condition, it immediately springs up because of the warmth of the soil, but it's not replanted into a pot or a good soil. And what happens, if you leave a seed in a hotbed, it's going to die because it can't get its roots down. It's just good for getting that quick, immediate growth. But then you've got to move them out of there. But here, this ground is not suitable for 
the raising of grain. What kills the seed is the heat of tribulation or persecution. Tribulation or persecution is what kills the seed, the word of God in this heart. People who respond positively to the word of God immediately are very often only seeing the benefit of God's word and being a believer in Christ, and they are not counting the cost. Do you know that everything is a cost-benefit analysis? Every decision you make in your life is going to cost something and hopefully provide some benefit. Now, a foolish person, of which there are many, only look at the benefit that is going to come to them from a certain action or a certain decision. I could point out some examples among our own leaders in our country and the foolish positions that they take because they don't look at the cost of a position, they only look at the benefit and they sell it to the people on that basis who are foolish. And this is what people do with the gospel. They say, hey, look, I can have forgiveness of sins. I can have eternal life. I can have a place in God's kingdom. That all sounds wonderful. What a great benefit. I love this message. But then they find out that, oh, there's going to be persecution because I'm a Christian? There's going to be some cost in my life? I thought that when I became a Christian that God was now my father and he was going to give me everything that I wanted and that I was going to be healthy and wealthy and and go to heaven and I thought it was all positive and no hard times. And when they find out that it's not that way, like, count me out. I'm not in for this Christian thing. Jesus talked about this when he was referring to the wisdom that is required to build a tower. When you're setting out on a building project, you've got to make sure you've got enough money to finish it before you get started. You don't start building something that you don't have enough money to finish. And Jesus says, that's what it's like following me. You don't start out as a follower of Jesus unless you intend to finish as a follower of Jesus. And he also said it's like going to war. You don't go out to battle unless you figure out, have I got enough soldiers to win the war? And so you don't become a Christian unless you figure it out, are you willing to die for Jesus? Because if you're not willing to die for Jesus, you're not going to be able to make it to the end. Satan will put on the pressure, he'll put on the affliction, He'll use those negative reinforcements, Satan's stick, as you might call it, to drive you away from Christ. You know, people respond to motivations. They respond to carrots and sticks. That's how people make their choices and how they respond in life. And Satan will use the stick of suffering and persecution to drive people away from Christ. And he'll use the carrot to draw them away. The stick drives them away, the carrot draws them away, and the carrot is the next of the ground, the thorny ground in verse 18. Notice that. Others are the ones sown among thorns. They hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word. I was like, yeah, great, I'll be a Christian, but I also want this. Oh, and I want this, and, and oh, look at that. And they're drawn away from Christ by all these other things, these other desires that they have. And they don't bring any fruit to fruition. So Jesus is explaining the response of the people of Israel, but not just the people of Israel, the response of all people in all times and places to the word of God in this parable. But while you might start to get discouraged and see, well, there's three kinds of ground that are not producing any fruit. It seems like the sower's task is kind of thankless. He's got the stony ground. He's got the thorny ground. He's got the rocky ground. This seems like a big waste of time. 
to go out and sow the seed of God's word. Well, if you're starting to think that, take heart, because that's not the way the parable ends. There is the fourth soil. And the fourth soil is not just good soil. The fourth soil is great soil. It's amazing soil. Because when Jesus says at the end of the parable that it bears 30-fold, 60-fold, and even a 100-fold, this is mind-blowing results. All right? So whatever was lost on the thorny ground, whatever was lost on the stony ground, whatever became bird seed, you're not too worried about that because you've got 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold return. And, and back in that day, in that place, that was astounding. That was what every farmer would dream of getting from his sowing. 30-fold is three times what would have been thought a good harvest. A good harvest would have been tenfold. We know that from ancient writings that document their agriculture. So 30-fold is amazing. They would, they would love to have 30-fold. But then he goes on with 60-fold. And he saves the best for last. 100-fold. People are like, is that even possible? How can ground restore a hundredfold well, the seed that you sow on it? Well, there was an example in the scriptures of a hundredfold return on the investment of the seed. And that goes back to the book of Genesis where we are told that God so blessed the farming of the patriarchs that he gave them a hundredfold return on their seed back in Genesis chapter 26, verse 12. The good soil is good soil because of God's grace. But here, in John chapter 15, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Once again, a fruit-bearing metaphor. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears what? Much fruit. Not a little bit of fruit. Not, well, it's a good return, tenfold. No. The Christian bears much fruit, amazing fruit. And we're talking about bearing fruit. We're not just talking about conversion. Sometimes people focus on that and say, you know, that Christians make more Christians and that's the fruit that God wants in our life and we're here as evangelists and so we should be having converts. But if every Christian had 30 converts and every Christian had 60 converts and some Christians had 100 converts, well, everyone would be a Christian by now. All right? Just do the math. 2,000 years of 30, 60, and 100 times, starting with 12, you got the whole world and more. As believers. So he's not just talking about conversions. When he's talking 30, 60, and 100 fold, the fruit is the fruit of righteousness. The fruit is the fruit of thankfulness and praise to God. The fruit is the fruit of obedience to God from the heart. And our lives are filled with it. And God delights in it. And he rejoices in the harvest of righteousness that is coming from his field, from his church. And he's not so mournful and sad. Well, I didn't get any fruit off the path and that's st stony ground and, and boy, now I, I just bankrupted myself. No. The sowing of God's word is produced marvelously and God is delighted in the harvest of righteousness that is in the world now and has been since the sowing of the seed began. Well, because of time's sake, we're going to save the other kingdom parables for next week because there's a lot of power in those little seeds. And we'll take a look, not at the soils, but at the seed next week and see the power of God's word.